I remember one moment I was smiling from ear to ear and congratulating, giving congratulations over the phone. The very next moment, my smile dropped and I was actually headed to the hospital. That's how quickly a conversation can change when an expecting family calls you and says, the baby has come. But there are serious problems. So when I received that phone call, what I was expecting to see was that, that picture-perfect scene. Mom laying there holding the baby. Dad standing proudly behind, smiling. But what I saw was very different. When I arrived at the hospital, the dad was right. It was, it was serious. Baby had tubes, equipment all around. And that's actually why I was there. Uh, they called me to perform a, an emergency baptism so that God, through his faithful promise, could already prepare that newborn to leave this world. Just a month ago, I received something in the mail. It was from the same mother and father from so many years ago. But do you know what I received in the mail? It's an invitation to a graduation for a boy named Casey who was very much alive and well and healthy. And yes, is the same baby that I baptized in the hospital 18 years ago. It was really an amazing moment to to receive that picture in the mail of this young man because instantly I flash back to the hospital and it, the scene in the hospital, it just didn't seem possible that I would receive a graduation invitation from him. But I do say almost impossible. You see, that whole time in the hospital, there was one sign of life, one sign of hope, and it was this translucent blue bag with a mask on it. The mask went over the nose and the mouth of the baby. The bag was in the hand of a skilled nurse. And every time the nurse squeezed that bag, air went into the baby, the lungs, the chest went up. Every time she relaxed, air went out. The lungs relaxed and went down. And we just watched Squeeze after squeeze, in and out. From that hospital room to the emergency airplane to the hospital three hours away, in and out. As long as that baby had breath, we had hope. Because there was life. It's, it's a truth, isn't it? That breath, in many ways, equals life. That's true medically, as I just demonstrated. That's what I think of when I think of breath equaling life. But it's also true in God's church that breath equals life, especially when that breath isn't coming from a, a translucent blue bag, but it's coming from the Spirit of God. That's why God gathers us every year to celebrate this day, Pentecost. Because just like those, the, that, that time 18 years ago in the hospital, he wants us to be looking at, staring at the sure signs of life and hope in our lives and in the church.
He wants us to know that no matter how we may feel at a certain time, no matter how things may look in our lives or in the church even, as long as there is breath, there is life. And so today, we want to take a look at what is that breath of God? What does that mean? How does the Lord breathe life into us? I kind of wondered to myself this week, how many times has the church of God, and when I say the church of God, this is my definition of that, the, the worldwide gathering of those who believe in Jesus, okay? So how many times has the church of God looked like that tiny infant looked in the hospital that day, hooked up to life support? I thought of the situation in our world today where our increasingly godless culture would look at us as this insignificant dying breed. Maybe on life support. Huh? I go back further in history, think to Martin Luther and in like the 1500s where even the church was burying the word of God so that it was the spiritual dark ages. I go back farther in history to the days after Jesus' death, and, and I wonder if almost the whole church on earth fit into a tiny locked room of 12 people. You go back even further, and then we get to Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And there again, it looks like the church is on its deathbed. You see, the situation is Ezekiel was a prophet during the Babylonian captivity. So you think about what that would have been for God's people. When they looked out around them, they saw a foreign king. They saw uh, strange customs, unfamiliar language, uncomfortable surroundings. It looked like they, as a people, and consequently God's chosen people, the church, was dying. Like they were in the hospital room, full of the smell of death. That was bad enough, but... The Babylonian captivity was really, was really a result of something else. The physical situation was bad, but, the, but the, the real story was deep inside the hearts of God's people. You see, the Babylonian captivity started long before they ever stepped foot out of Israel into Babylon. It began when, when God's people just, they just had a simple request. They wanted to be like the world around them. And for them, they, they wanted a king. Seems like a simple request, right? But that evolved into something more. Not only did they want to be like the world around them, they wanted to, to dabble in the things that the world was doing as well. And for them, that was idolatry. And look at their history. It just snowballed, and pretty soon, God was pressed out of their, their hearts completely. And so when you think about the Babylonian captivity, it really started in the heart long before they ever went to Babylon. Without even knowing it, death had crept in on them. That's why when you get to Ezekiel and the words I just read, it's a fitting picture. How God pictures his people. Did you catch what the picture was? It said, The hand of the Lord is upon me, brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and set me in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. 
He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. Those bones are God's people. You talk about a picture of death. But it's not even just death, if this is possible. Because look at the bones. They're, they're dry. They're, they're dusty. They're bleached in the sun. Not just dead, but, but really dead, if that's even possible. That was the picture of God's people. And so they were really right, physically and spiritually, when they looked at themselves and they cried out. Oh, I, maybe it's the last one. But they cried out, I don't have it on there, but they cried out, our bones are dried up. Our hope is gone. We're cut off. That was their cry. That was the situation. Just like the baby in the hospital room. There was no life in them. They had no power to breathe. If there was going to be any hope, someone had to breathe life into them. And that's what this reading is all about. It's God keeping his promise, being faithful. He says, I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. God breathed into them. God breathed into them. And if you had your Bibles open in your reading, you would see a footnote under breathe and breath. The Hebrew word for breath is the same word for spirit. And that's, that's huge whenever you're reading the scriptures, but especially in this, in this text. You think about that, this breath equals spirit. So the spirit of God is the breath of God. It's the same thing. God breathed into them. And maybe you are familiar with this section, but I just read it too. What happened when he prophesied and God put breath into them? What happened to the bones? Connective tissue. Muscle, skin. God breathed into them and these bones stood up. God breathed into them and it says they were alive. This vast army of life. When God, as long as God was, was breathing into them, his spirit equals life. I, I think this is an awesome, awesome historical event. Where, where God prophesied to Ezekiel. Basically, Ezekiel was getting to witness what happened at the very beginning of time, at creation, right? When God brought life out of absolutely nothing. But you're probably thinking right now, what, is, what does it mean? Cool. Bones came to life. What, what does it mean? Did that mean for Israel that everything was going to be fine for them even though they were spiritually dead? Did it mean that everything was going to go back to the way it was? That they were going to be rich and prosperous? That they were going to go back and find their, their land, their, their walls, their temple? They were going to be glorious? Not exactly. It's true. A very short time after this, uh, one of the small fulfillments of this was that a very small remnant was going to return to the land of Israel. But when they got there, they were going to find that it was already full of foreigners wasn't no, it was no longer their land. They were going to look at their buildings, look for the walls, look for the temple. They wouldn't be there. They were toppled. Things were not going to be like they used to be. So that was not the fulfillment of the prophecy. So what does it mean? What's the greatest fulfillment of the prophecy of these bones coming to life? 
Well, that's the word that the children learned a few minutes ago. Pentecost. The day of Pentecost. I want you to think about the day of Pentecost as we heard it in the book of Acts. First of all, I want you to think of 12 descendants of those captives in Babylon. We know them as the disciples. How did they start out the day of Pentecost? They were still in that locked room. They were scared. They were weak. They were helpless, lifeless, unable to do anything on their own. But God breathed into them. Right? He sent his spirit. And what happened when he sent his spirit? The disciples were out of the room. They were out among the crowd. And they were sharing the wonders of God to every nation under heaven. Those dry bones lived. I want you to think of something else on, on Pentecost. Think about 3,000 people that they preached to. How did they start out the day of Pentecost? Well, many of them were still banking on their bloodlines for their salvation. Many of them were still counting on all the things that they were doing to win God's favor. Many of them were still reveling in the triumph that they had over this, this traitor, this troublemaker named Jesus 50 days earlier. But God breathed into them. Through the preaching of the disciples, he sent his Holy Spirit and what happened? We didn't read it, but I'll tell you. They believed. 3,000 people in one day believed and were baptized. Those dry bones lived, right? So what about this Pentecost day? I distinctly remember one trip to the dentist. Uh, I was laying in the dentist chair. The hygienist had my mouth uncomfortably wide open, poking and prodding. And that's when she decides to have a conversation with me, right? I got a question for you. You're a pastor, right? Is your church alive? That was her question for me. Is your church alive? And I thought my answer was pretty insightful. I said, <laughs> that's all you can say at a dentist. Um, but it is a good question to ponder, isn't it? Are we alive? Are we much different? Are we any different from those people of God in, in Babylon? I guess it depends on where we're looking for life, right? How do you answer that question? Where are you looking for life to say that our church is alive? I, I know where she was looking. I know where she wanted to hear that the pews, the chairs are full. There's elbow room only that we're always rocking in the pews, that our, our church calendar is full of every program. That's what she was looking for. That's not bad, but if that's true, are we alive? Where do we look for life when I ask that question? Do we look at our baptism or confirmation certificates and make sure it says Lutheran because we're the favored ones? As long as it says Lutheran, we're alive. Do we look at our record of church attendance, our record of, of helping others, and as long as we have enough check marks, we're alive? Is it the other side of things? As long as we're on the books, as long as the church is here for those events that we need it for, then, then we're alive. 
Do we look outside of church at how well our lives are going? Maybe to our jobs or to our, our health, to our bank accounts, to our vacations, to our hobbies. Like, if, if those things are good, then, then we're really living, then we're alive. If we're just looking at the outward things, we need to be careful because that's how death crept up on God's people in Ezekiel's day, right? And we have to remember how God describes us by nature. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You see, it's so easy for us to think that everything is going good. We're, we're definitely alive because of this and this and this on the outside. All the while, death is creeping up, shackling us. We assume God has to love us for who we are or what we do, no matter what we dabble in with our hands, no matter what we allow to fill our hearts. We need breath breathed into us, don't we? I think it's awesome how at creation, you get this picture of God literally getting down on his hands and knees. And almost like that, translucent blue bag just blowing into Adam until he became alive. God may not get down on his hands and knees beside us, but he breathes into us. He does. He does it differently. And did you notice how God breathes into us in the passage from Ezekiel? This is what he said to Ezekiel. He said, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. What's the breath? The word. God's word is his breath. And his breath is his spirit. And so God breathes into us as we hear his word. The word about Jesus. God stands over our dry, lifeless bones. And he breathes his spirit into us through the word. There's a passage that says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. It's the same picture, right? Life from nothing, life from dry bones. And so just apply that to your life. How does God breathe into you? God breathes his spirit into you through his word, in baptism, how he reminds you that he has clothed you with Christ. As you are loved by God, you're part of his family. God breathes life into you. He puts his spirit into you through his word in the Lord's Supper. That we remember Jesus' death and he reminds us that he died. And so every one of our sins, all the dabbling in what the world has around us, all the sins inside, gone, washed away. God breathes his life, his spirit into us through the word in the Bible. Every time we're in the Bible and, and we remember the resurrection of Jesus and how God accepted his sacrifice and we have eternal life, that's the spirit. And so as you think about that, go back to that question. Are we alive? As long as God is breathing his spirit into us, through the message of Jesus, absolutely, 100% we are alive. No matter what we might feel at certain times, no matter how it might look around us, 
God's spirit is breath, is his breath. God's spirit is our life. I think back to that newborn in the hospital. Very impactful to, to know that that baby had to have someone breathe for him. Breath had to be put in him. I just give thanks to God that he got it that day. Not just from that bag, but from, from this. Through baptism, God breathing his spirit into that baby to connect him to Jesus, to connect him to everything he did for him, to bring him into God's family. Thanks be to God that he still does that for every one of his children. God is still breathing his life into you through the Holy Spirit, through the Word. Every time that we are in the message of Jesus, God is breathing life into his church. May he continue to do that for you day after day all the way to eternity. Amen.